0: I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Hey, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining me this morning. This is a very, very special week. It's actually called by many uh, the most important week of the entire Omer count, which, as you know, we are counting the days between Pesach and Shavuos. Pesach and Shavuot are connected holidays. We begin by, you know, leaving Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt, but of course, there's something, as the psychologist Eric From said, there's something called freedom from and freedom to. And freedom from being free in and of itself is not enough unless a person is freedom towards something, right? And of course, the Jewish people's freedom came when we ended up at the foot of Mount Sinai and Hashem gave us the Torah and the word again for carved. The luchot were carved by the finger of God with the Ten Commandments. The same wor- word for charut, carved is the same word cherut, which means free. So Jew- the Jewish people found their freedom, and f- by following again, not the dictator of Paro anymore. But the benevolent master, Hashem, we became his, if you like, slaves or his servants willingly. And so this is the time period that we're in. As we said before, some say that this time period should be looked at as a cholamoid, as the intermediate days, festive kind of days between the two holidays, Pesach and Shavuot. So this week is the most important week, and there's a number of reasons for it. Of course, we know that we're going to be celebrating on Wednesday night, Lagva Omer, Wednesday night, Thursday, which of course is an incredible day, a day of festivity, of joy. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And this is also the week, for those of you who may not know, that we have a mitzvah called Pesach Sheni which was a mitzvah that the Jewish people initiated. It came from below, so to speak, and God consented. And that was a a mitzvah that was um, asked for by the people, people who had missed bringing the Korban, Pesach, at Pesach time, felt that they wanted a second chance. And so they asked to be able to bring it on a different day. And Hashem acquiesced. And so some people have the minhag of eating a piece of matzah on Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni came out, hi Shelly, came out this week on Saturday night right after Shabbos. So um, basically the idea of Pesach Sheni and the, and the idea of Lag Baomer that I want to bring out today is the idea of new beginnings or one of the uh, one of the messages of Lag Baomer is the idea of resilience of not giving up, of beginning over. And just a little bit about that. So Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer was the day when Rabbi Akiva's students stopped dying. Okay, so that doesn't sound like such a happy day. I mean, they stopped dying because there were none left to die. As we know, 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva's died and this was terrible. There were other calamities that also took place in Jewish history throughout this time period, the Crusades and other uh, horrific um, persecutions. So it's interesting that it coincided with this time period. And we're told that on Lagba Omer, the morning ends. But this whole time period before Lagba Omer was a time of tremendous darkness and pain. And the Gemara says that when these students left the world, the world was desolate. And what they're referring to is the fact that it was desolate of Torah. And of course, Torah always represents light. It's always represented by light. We call it Torah Or. So literally, spiritually, if you like, the world was completely dark. But we know that on the day, on, that, that after this happened, Rabbi Akiva, who was the leader of these 24,000 students, could have felt completely dejected, could have thrown in the towel and said, you know, I obviously am not a successful Rosh Yeshiva. I had 24,000 students. I taught them the maxim, that you should love other people the way you love yourself. This is the entire Torah. And yet, as we know, the popular um, understanding from the Gemara is that the reason that they died is because they didn't give proper honor or importance to one another. So that's not what our shir is about today. What is, what, one of the things that I want to focus on right now is the idea that Rabbi Akiva gets up and he starts over again. And he starts with five students. And this, of course, takes tremendous resilience. And another way of looking at the fire of Lugba Omer, of course, you know, in Israel, the kids are all schlepping wood everywhere. They've been doing this since Pesach. You don't see it as much, you know, in Hutz Aras, but I got my grandchildren to clean up the backyard. I told them, come on, let's make a big pile of sticks for Lugba Omer. I'm not sure I'm lighting them on fire, but, you know, whatever. Hopefully they'll get to see a bonfire somewhere. Um, But I did get a pile of sticks in my backyard that way. Anyway, the idea of the fire, another way of looking at it is this idea of resilience. The way that Rabbi Akiva was able to rise up again from the darkness and begin all over again with five students. And of course, one of these five students was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is the great rabbi whose site is marked on Lagba Omer. And of course, people make this pilgrimage to his kever, to his um, place where he is buried on, on Har Meron, right? Very close to Tzfat. And there's fires that are lit and people throw candles into the fire. And it's considered to be a day of tremendous rejoicing. Now, why is this so? Because what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai gave to the world was the Zohar. The Zohar, a very popular name today for Jewish girls, boys, right? Zoe, Zohar um, are the mystical and internal teachings of the Torah. And before Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai dies, he reveals this hidden Torah to the world. In other words, this tremendous light that was hidden is revealed. Interestingly, the letters Lamed Gimel, Lug, if you just switch them backwards, you get the word Gal. And Gal is the root of the word Gilui, or to reveal. For example, we have that same word in Megillat Esther. We read on Pura Megillat Esther, which means revealing what is hidden esther means come from comes from the word hester which means hidden and interestingly there's a connection between lagba omer and purim the calendar tells us that if you know what day lagba omer is then you know what day purim is going to be on that year so if lagba omer is thursday purim is going to be on thursday Okay, So the connection between Purim and Lagba Omer, and not only are they days of Simcha, but they were days when, so to speak, something was hidden. We know in the Megillah, the idea was that God's hand was hidden, God's name was hidden. And then suddenly there was this tremendous revelation, this tremendous revealing of that which was hidden. Everybody recognized in the Purim story that God was... Um, with them the entire time, hidden behind the seemingly everyday ordinary events. And of course, Lagba Omer was the day again when Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai was nifter when he died and his Zohar was revealed to the world. He revealed the Zohar, these hidden teachings of the Torah um, to his students who revealed them to the world. Okay, um, another thing I want to talk about is, again, well, well, the first idea, again, is this power of resilience and thinking about the fire of Lagba Omer as the ability to get up again, even after one has been through difficulties and challenges in life, even when it looks dark, even when it looks like there's no hope. This is what the Pasuk, Tzadik Yipol Shiva, shiva amin that come, right? That it's sadik falls seven times and he gets up. And of course, the idea is that when there's failure, the natural impulse is to give up, is to throw in the towel, is to say, I can't do it. But what Rabbi Akiva teaches us is that he began over again with these five students and, and a Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai came into the world and lit it up, not only with Torah, but a new Torah, a Torah that was nister, that was hidden, and now became revealed into the world. So just a little bit more about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, because I found this so interesting. I listened to a shir this morning by a woman in Israel named Gabi Horowitz. She's a Torah teacher and a coach, or a psychologist who deals with resilience, and she talked about the idea that, if you know the story, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai and his son El lived in a cave during Roman times for 12 years. And they were hiding there because, of course, their lives were in danger. Anybody taught, teaching Torah, learning Torah was killed. And they hid out in this cave. And of course, there's the miraculous carob tree that grows outside the cave that they subsist on. And there's a stream of water that flows by the cave. And they spend 12 years in this cave, learning and dovening, and basically being saturated in total kedusha, holiness, communing with God through, through the learning of Torah, and tefillah. And after 12 years, they come out of the cave. And what happens is they see people farming, going about their mundane, if you like, life, and they can't take it. They can't understand how anybody would want to live in this world without having total devekut, right? Total devekut to Hashem, through learning and davening and just want to spend their whole day doing that. And so they're so powerful spiritually that the story tells us, the Gemara teaches us that they burn up everything with their eyes. They look at it with such contempt, this mundanity, that they start burning everything up. And Hashem orders them back into the cave. And they go back into the cave for another year, and then they come out. And the Gemara continues to tell the story. And it says, this time when they come out, they see a man, a simple Jew, rushing before Shabbos, carrying two bundles of Bisami, of sweet smelling spices for Havdalah. And they stop him and they say, why are you carrying these two bundles? And he says, Well, this one is for Shamor, and this one is for Zachor, right? We know that Shabbat, we have the idea of Shamor, the Zachor, et Yom ha-shabbat. Keep the Shabbos, right? Keep it holy, and remember it all week long, right? Remember that every day is leading up to Shabbos. So they were so amazed that this simple Jew who was rushing with his bundles, you know, said this idea, that they realize that even the simplest Jew, as we said last week, is as full of mitzvot as a pomegranate. And by the way, just to remember from last week, we said that this week of the Omer that Lagba Omer falls in is the week called Hod. It's when we are focused on the mida or the character trait of Hod, which we're going to talk about, Okay. And hod corresponds, each week corresponds to the Shiva, Haminim, the seven species that are special to Eretz Yisroel. And this week corresponds to the rimon, the pomegranate. And the pomegranate from the outside has a peel that is very bitter. But when you enter into the pomegranate, it is sweet and juicy. And one of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's teaching was that every single Jew is as full of mitzvot kirimon like a pomegranate. No coincidence that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is buried on Har Meron, the same letters as the word Rimon. The day of Lag Omer is the sefirah, Hod ShebeHod, right? It's the most intense expression of this mida of hod, which we're going to talk about. But what happens is they come out of the cave and they're able to understand that even the most simple Jew is able to combine the physical world with spirituality. And I just want to share with you something that I, I heard this morning that fits so well with um, what we were learning in our last class. First of all, when Rabbi Shimon, Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Elazar emerged from the cave, what Hashem is trying to tell them and what we all need to know is that Torah learning is not supposed to make us close-minded, judgmental, and feeling superior to other people. Which is obviously what that story indicated when they came out and began burning up everything in their path. The mundane, physical, so to speak, life that most people live. As opposed to this completely spiritual existence, which he and his son were enjoying in the cave. Rather, Hashem orders them back into the cave to teach them. That the goal of learning Torah is to make you humble, which we're going to talk about more because that is what hod is. Hod is the, the um, work that we are doing in this time period during this week of becoming more humble, making ourselves small, emptying ourselves like the desert which is where we receive the Torah. Why in the desert? So one of the reasons given is because it's empty. And in order to receive the Torah, we have to empty ourselves of our arrogance, of our egocentricity, of our superiority or feelings of superiority over other people, because maybe because of our knowledge. But that's not a reason is what Hashem is telling them. You have to go back into the cave because the goal of learning is to make you humble and to make you love others. And what I want to share with you is, again, something that we spoke about in last week's class, the idea of this month of ER being the month of connection, that we have an ability in this month to be able to see the connection between the physical and the spiritual worlds and how they interrelate. And on that topic, I just had to share this with you. The Ridgeman Rebbe says that you can divide your activities of the day into two columns. One column are physical activities and the other column is spiritual activities. Now, the physical activities that he lists, some of them are washing, Drinking, eating, and intimacy. All very, very physical activities. Now, if you look at the words, and I hope you can see this. So at the top, we have rechitza, washing. And you'll notice that in each word, I highlighted the yud and the *hay*. Achila, eating. *shtiya* drinking. Bia, intimacy. They all contained the letters. Yud and He. Now, when you go to the spiritual list of things that we do all day or during the day. So we have Hora, Avoda, which is prayer, Mitzvot, right, Mitzvah, Mikvah, and Tahora, which is purity. In every single one of those words, you have the letters Vav and He. Wow, when you put them together you get Hashem's name, yod heh he. he, Vav heh Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, the name of Hashem that we don't say, right, the most holy name of Hashem. Those letters again are teaching us based on the original Rebbe's observation that the physical world and the spiritual world are one, they're connected. Our job is to live in the physical world, but make it holy. And this is what Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai and Elazar, his son, were taught. That, you know, to be kulo, completely holy, and unable to live in this world, is not what Hashem desires from us. He doesn't want us to become ascetics. He doesn't want us to be able to not relate to the physical world, to go up on a mountain, to leave the world, to join a monastery. Rather, the greatness in Judaism is that we're meant to be holy in the world. And that even the physical acts that we do carry God's name. And God's name is incomplete if we don't bring the holiness into the everyday that idea, again, of the month of ER being represented by the letter Vav. The letter Vav being the letter of connection, the letter of a hook, right? The letter that literally means hook in Hebrew, Vav, Vavim, or hooks. And in, you know, language, the Vav always is and. The idea of connection. And so here we see, again, in these words of the physical activities and the spiritual We see how they combine the name of Hashem, Yud, Hey Vav, and Isn't that incredible? I think it's incredible. Okay, now, just to go on a little bit more. So I want to talk a little bit more now about the concept that we are in the uh, week of Hod. And what is Hod? So first of all, Hod, every single week of the Omer, also corresponds To one of the seven shepherds. We call them the seven shepherds of the Jewish people. You know about them because on sukkahs. We call them by the Aramaic word. Ushpizan. And we say that every night. A different one of them comes to visit. Us in the sukkah. And the sukkah is so to speak saturated. With the character trait that they developed. To its max. Right. Avraham is chesed. Yitzchak is Gevura, discipline. And each one has um, his mida. So the mida of this week corresponds to Aron HaKohen. Okay? Now Aron, for any of you who know anything about Aron, right? Ohev Shalom, Berodev Shalom. He was a lover of peace and a pursuer of peace. He was somebody who ran after Shalom making shalom between people and of course shalom only rests in a place of humility in a place where people are able from the word hod lehodot to admit to apologize to admit their shortcomings to realize i'm not perfect i have a lot of work to do I just heard recently, I, I've said it before, that when you point the finger at somebody else, three are pointing back at you. But I heard an additional idea to that, and one is pointing up to Hashem. Right? So it's not about correcting other people, Hashem says. Your job is to see the good in other people. It's about shifting and recognizing your own shortcomings and Pointing to Hashem is, that's what he likes. That's what Hashem likes. It's between you and Hashem. Your relationship with other people, Hashem also cares about. And that's also part of becoming more holy, coming closer to Hashem. Also, hod is a very inner work, working on oneself, on one's humility. We know that Aaron Kohain's job was to go into the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies. Only the Kohen Gadot could enter into that place of intense holiness without dying, literally, physically. Only the Kohen Gadol could withstand that. And only if he was in a place of perfection in terms of his humility. Otherwise, of course, there were Kohen Gadals, who literally had to be pulled out and, you know, there, there was always a string attached to them, should they die in the Holy of Holies. So Hod represents humility. It represents the ability to admit our shortcomings, which is connected to Teshuva, And it also is very much connected to the word Hodaah, which means to be grateful to have gratitude. And of course, a humble person is somebody who's walking around not saying, what can you do for me? But what can I do for you? And also somebody who doesn't take anything for granted. Whatever somebody does for them, first of all, they recognize that something good that's done for them is coming to them from Hashem. The person is a shaliyah. So it makes their attachment to Hashem even closer because they recognize that all the goodness in this world and all the good that somebody might do for them is all coming from Hashem because of his kindness and his benevolence and that everything that we have is what we call a matnat chinam, a free gift. It's not tit for tat. It's not, I did this many mitzvahs today, Hashem, so... You have to give me this many breaths so I can keep on living. Rather, Hashem gives us above and beyond anything that could ever be tit-for-tat. Because in the world of Din, you know, when we sin, the king should really say, off with his head. And... Hashem doesn't do that, but rather he continues to to bestow kindness upon us and to give us, like Pesach Sheni, another chance and another chance and another chance. And being grateful, not only to other people, but to Hashem, puts somebody in a place of humility. It helps you to build and develop that humility. And this is the week of humility. It says that, Humility is the fuel of endurance. Humility shouldn't be confused with weakness and lack of self-esteem. Humility is modesty. It's acknowledgement. From the word hoda'a. It's saying thank you to God. It's clearly recognizing your qualities and strengths and acknowledging that they're not your own. They were given to you by God for a higher purpose than just satisfying your own needs. Humility is modesty. It's recognizing how small you are, which allows you to realize how large you can become. Okay, interestingly, the idea of, um, you know, we've been working on our character traits, and of course the learning of Torah is not to make us smarter, but to make us better, right? The goal of Jewish education is not information, it's transformation. Or as Rabbi Breitowitz quoting Pirkei Avos this past week said, if your wisdom exceeds your deeds, it is like a tree with many branches, but few roots. You could have a lot of Torah knowledge, but if your wisdom is more than your deeds, then you're like a tree with many branches, but few roots. If a wind comes along and blows that tree, it will be easily uprooted because it's not about what we know, it's about what we do. Judaism is a religion of action. And so of course we learn because we wanna know what to do and we wanna know how to be better. But the point of Torah is not to become a scholar in an academic sense. But to transform ourselves into a humble, loving, non-judgmental, open-minded, welcoming type of person. Okay, back to the idea of humility. The root of all bad mitos, says the altar of Kelm, is the idea of anokhiyas. anochi. right? The Ten Commandments begin with, I am Hashem, your God, Anochi. He's the real Anohi. Anochius means self-absorption. All bad character traits come from self-absorption, absorption, egocentricity, arrogance. How dare you do that to me, right? And the truth is, is we're born like this. Every single one of us is born with a spotlight on us. The whole world was created for me, right? The infant comes into the world, it says, with their hands open, saying, Give me, give me, give me, give me, I'm the center of the world. But the goal of life is to take that spotlight and and learn how to shine it on other people. So the opposite of Enochias of self-absorption and egocentricity is obviously. Rather than being self-centered, being other-centered. And the only way we can do this is by developing our humility. Okay, so in the time that's left to us, I'm going to share with you from a class I gave many years ago on this topic. It was called, How Can I Be Humble When I'm So Great? And I think, except for Clanton Park, I must have given it at all the other shuls we were in, because they asked me to give a speech for the Amuna Woman's Shabbat. So it relates to Parsha's Ha'alosachah, which we are obviously not in yet, but we can always learn Torah from any parts of Torah. So how can I be humble when I'm so great? So Avram Avinu said, Anochi Afar Ve'efer. We're going to learn from the great people how to be humble," he said. "I'm nothing but dust and ashes." David HaMelech said, "Ani tolaat Velo ish. I am a worm and not a man." And Moshe and Aaron said, anachnu numah. What are we?" We say this every morning in davening. "What are we? Ma'anachu meichayenu." What is our life? What are our good deeds? They're nothing compared to you, Hashem. Right? What can we possibly do to earn our lives that you give us every single day with compassion? (inaudible) Raba Amunasecha, great is your belief in us that we're going to rise again each day and try to be a little bit better a little bit more cognizant of all of the gifts that you give us, which will feed into the humility that will make us happier people and more tranquil people. So, you know, the great Jewish personalities, these people, according to today's, you know, cognitive psychologists and professionals would be, would, 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 they would say that these people are suffering from low self-esteem, right? I'm a worm and not a man. I'm nothing but dust and ashes. And um, they'd probably be writing up IEPs for parents in terms of, you know, getting their kids the help that they need. But actually, these great Jewish personalities were just expressing humility, a character trait required to be a great leader and a great Jew. And we're all required to develop this mita, As it says in Micha, Uma Hashem Doresh Mimcha. What does Hashem ask from you? What does Hashem ask from you? Only that you should love justice, do kindness, and walk humbly with Hashem. So how do we do that? So there is a lot of confusion today between humility and low self-esteem, right? Everything today is about low self-esteem and you have to build the kids' self-esteem. And if they do, you know, something, if they pour, you know, it could be something so small. Sorry. We're constantly building their self-esteem to the degree that, you know, if they sneeze and get a tissue, Wow, you're amazing. You're so incredible, you know? And humility out there in the world somehow connotes weakness, being meek and timid. Actually, in the Oxford Dictionary, the definition for humility, believe it or not, is having or possessing low self-esteem one of the definitions. But what I want to put forth is that this is completely untrue. That it's only somebody that has very, very good self-esteem and a very high self-esteem that can become a humble person. You can't have true humility until you really know your greatness, right? As we know, it says about Moshe Rabbeinu, he was the greatest prophet and the greatest prophet that ever lived. Lo Israel Yisrael od. He went up to Harsinai and so to speak met Hashem face to face. So, you know, he obviously knew as leader of the Jewish people that he was chosen because of his greatness. And yet because Hashem was in front of him in such a real way, figuratively and literally, he understood his smallness in comparison to Hashem, and that's what keeps a person humble, and also recognizing that no human being is completely perfect. Even a Moshe Rabbeinu, we know, wasn't allowed into the land of Israel for the Sin on his level of becoming angered by the Jewish people, right? And of course, the greater you are, the more microscopically Hashem judges your failures. The Torah doesn't hide the mistakes and failures, even of our greatest people, because it wants us to know that we ourselves should never give up Working towards the tremendous character traits that they all embodied, including this character trait of humility, which again, can only come after a person recognizes their strengths, and how valuable they are, and how much they have to offer in the world, and how much Hashem expects from them, and their weaknesses. And the fact that they're imperfect. And Hashem created us this way, as we know from, you can, you can look at my class on self-esteem on the podcast, which talks a lot about owning both sides, right? Our strengths and our weaknesses. And that's how we develop self-esteem. So what is low self-esteem? So someone who doesn't believe in himself and has no self-confidence and puts himself down. Rabbi Tversky, Rabbi Abraham Tversky, who was a great psychiatrist and a great spiritual thinker. He ran a rehabilitation clinic in Pittsburgh for alcoholics and other addicts. And Rabbi Tversky, I heard him speak once in Manhattan. At that point in his life, he'd written 31 books. And I think he wrote many, many more since then. Unfortunately, he died last year, and the world lost a great light. But his writings and his teachings continue. Somebody asked him, I remember at that lecture in Manhattan, they put up their hand and they said, "You know, how is it that you've had so much time to write 31 books?" And Rabbi Tursky responded and said, "I didn't write 31 books. I wrote one book. I wrote one book 31 different ways. But every single one of my books." is on self-esteem. Now, he himself suffered from low self-esteem. He's very honest about it. He was a chess prodigy. He grew up in a home saturated with Torah and wisdom and comes from a long line of rabbis. But he suffered from low self-esteem. And he points out that sometimes it's the most talented and most intelligent people that think the least of themselves. And Rabbi Pliskin once said that very often you see that even with good people, that it's people who are really good people that are never feeling like they're good enough. They're really bad. They're not, you know. And this is a part of the human condition. And what Rabbi Twersky writes is he says there are many people who, who believe themselves to be much less capable and competent than they are in reality. And it is this mistaken self-concept that produces a myriad of problems. The Torah definition of humility is to be aware of your talents and abilities and know what your strengths are. But, number one, to realize that these strengths and talents are God-given. You did nothing, right? As I've said many times, who I am is God's gift to me. What I become, who I become, is my gift to God. You did not create yourself, right? We say this every morning in Mizmor Latoda. Hashem created me. I didn't create myself. And the second thing that keeps a person humble when they look at their talents and their strengths, number one, that they're God-given. Number two, that they come with expectations. Whatever Hashem gives you, whether he blesses you with a good voice or he blesses you with a a lot of parnassa, a lot of money, right? Whether he blesses you with certain talents, certain intellectual abilities, they come with strings attached. He's expecting us to use them And to return ourselves to him, having used them. And there are ramifications for our excuses for not. And this keeps a person humble. This feeling of, I have to actualize my potential. I have to use all of the things Hashem gave me, materially, spiritually, spiritually in Hashem's service. Another difference between humility and low self-esteem, I like to say, is humility takes a lot of hard work to acquire, whereas low self-esteem just seems to come naturally. You don't have to work too hard on having low self-esteem. I don't know if you've heard this story, but it's always very funny to me. It's about a a new bacher that comes to the Novartic yeshiva. Now, now the Novartic yeshiva in Europe was a very strict place of musur, where people worked on themselves in all kinds of ways to create humility, to become more humble. So they tell this story about a new student that comes into the yeshiva. And he, you know, sits down. And he hears people around him saying to themselves, I'm a nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm just dust and ashes, I'm a worm, you know, all of the words and paraphrasing the great Torah personalities. So, you know, he figures, you know, this is what people do here, I'm going to do this too, right? So he starts saying, I'm a nothing, I'm a Gurnished, I'm a nobody, and you know he's getting more and more into it. And He's saying it louder and louder. And all of a sudden, one guy, you know, says to the other guy, "Who is this guy?" He says, "I don't know. He just got here." And he says, "What? He just got here and already he thinks he's a gornished?" You know. In other words, he didn't work at it. You know, this takes work to become a gornished, to become a nothing and a nobody. To really see yourself, not only again, not meaning that you're a nothing and a nobody but in relationship to Hashem and in relationship to what you are meant to accomplish in this world I've got a long way to go that's the idea of good self-esteem okay so a little bit more about a humble person A humble person is somebody who forgives easily. A humble person is somebody who judges favorably. Right? When somebody doesn't meet your expectations, a humble person looks for excuses for them. He looks to give them the benefit of the doubt. Where do we learn this from? We actually learned this from an episode that happens in the Torah in Parsha's Behalosachah where Miriam and Aram speak Lashon Hara about Moshe. And Hashem basically punishes them for this. But when Moshe finds out about it, he does not respond. And it's at this point in the Torah that God writes, "The ha'ish Moshe anav me'od mikol ha'adam asher alpene Adama. Now the man Moshe was exceedingly humble more than any other person on the face of the earth. So why does Hashem insert this into this episode where Aaron and Miriam, his brother and sister, have spoken derogatory information about Moshe? It has to do with the fact that Moshe separated from his wife for reasons that he knew of, and they felt that this was a wrong thing to do. Again, what we learn from Moshe is he doesn't respond to insult, another idea of the humble person, and he doesn't take revenge. Rather, what, Hashem, what Moshe starts to do, it's Hashem, sorry, it's Hashem, not Moshe, who protests to the slander that was spoken and intervenes and gently rebukes Miriam. And then Hashem punishes Miriam with sara'as, with leprosy, a punishment for lashon hara in those days, and she's sent out of the camp for seven days. And Moshe, this exceedingly humble man who's just been insulted, if you like, reacts passionately and cries out to Hashem, using the word sa'aka, which is a cry from deep within. It's the same word used that the Jewish people cried out and that's when Hashem decided to take us out of Mitzrayim it came from such a deep and desperate place with total reliance on Hashem this is the same cry Moshe cries out but why to heal his sister Hashem please heal her please The word na is used twice in the short sentence. And again, a humble person is concerned that another person's greatness is not diminished. A humble person is always looking to forgive, always looking to judge others favorably. A humble person, as we said, never forgets the kindness that someone has done for them. Moshe orders the entire camp to wait for Miriam until the time of her tzara'as is over. Because Moshe doesn't forget in his humility how Miriam waited for him by the side of the river as a young child who was put into the basket in the Nile River. And she waited and she watched to make sure that he would be okay. Moshe waits for Miriam like she waited for him. The bottom line is a humble person again is the opposite of anochius, of self-absorption, egocentricity. The the humble person is other-centered. A famous line in one of Joni Mitchell's songs that I always loved, she said, I love you when I forget about me. that's when we feel the deepest love for another person. When it's completely and utterly altruistic with nothing in it or not not us thinking about what's in it for me. There's a story told about a Jewish movie mogul of the MGM studios from the 1950s, 1940s, 50s. He was once on a talk show And the interviewer was interviewing him. And after he had spoken for quite a while, he said to the interviewer, okay, okay, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? (laughs) So I think I mentioned as a kid growing up in the 70s, my mother, and I'm sure many other people's mothers, had this famous book called I'm Okay, You're Okay. If you remember that book, I don't even know who wrote it. And I used to look at it very cynically, at least the title. And I used to think it really should be called, obviously, "I'm okay, you're not okay," because the truth is, is that that is really how we see people. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who was the leader of the Musser movement, would probably agree with me, because what he said was that before he started to work on himself, he said that he basically viewed himself as perfect. And other people have a lot of faults. Then he said, I worked on myself a little bit. And I realized, oh, you know what? I have faults and so do you. And then he said, when I got to the highest level of working on my character development and my humility and my work on getting rid of my self-absorption, I came to a place where I said, I have faults, but I only see your virtues. He was able to focus in on the virtue of other people and see only the work that he had to do. So Torah leaders of generate of the generation are called Ene Ha'eda. Ene Ha'eda. Interesting. They're called the eyes of the community. So I want to share with you a beautiful idea that I bring up all the time that's just become part of i guess the torah that, that i say and this is a story about Rav gifter of the tells yeshiva he was once once visiting an ophthalmologist and there's a line in tehillim where, God, where david hamelech beseeches hashem he says sham hashem ki bas ayin guard me hashem like the pupil of the eye Now, the question is, why this image of the pupil of the eye, right? Well, of course, the eyes need to be guarded, right? And the eyelashes guard the pupil of the eye, like Hashem, so to speak, guards us. If one little speck of dust gets into our eye, our vision is clouded and we can't see. But... What Rav Gifter brought out is an idea of this uh, passive being related to the concept of humility. And the idea that the Hebrew language, as we know, Lashon HaKodesh teaches us wisdom for living. So the word for pupil of the eye, or pupil, is the word Ishon. Ishon is Ish, the word Ish, which means man, with the Yud and the Nun. Which whenever there's a yod and a nun at the end of a noun, it means a smaller. It's diminutive. So the pupil of an eye is actually called a small man. You can translate it as a small man. So Rav Gifter quotes the Radak, who says, why is the pupil called a little man? He says, because when you look into the eyes of another person, you see yourself and you are a little man or woman, you see yourself small. And Rav Gifter said, we can learn a very important lesson from this. He said, the normal way when we're interacting with other people is we tend to look down on others and see ourselves as superior. Oh, listen to what I have to say. Let me tell you what I know. Wait, uh, I'm just waiting for you to stop talking so I can show you how intelligent and how brilliant I am, right? We see ourselves as big and we see the other person as smaller. The proper way, says Rav Gifter, is to consider others as superior to ourselves, to seek to find virtues in them that make the other one prominent. You, yourself, you should regard the way you appear in the pupil of your fellow's eye as diminutive and humble. And it's no wonder we're told that Rav Gifter had thousands of students. Now, I just wanna end with a couple more ideas about humility. We're not gonna get through the whole sheer. Maybe we'll bring it up in another class. As I've quoted before, there is no nobility in feeling superior to another person. True nobility comes in being superior to your previous self. Doing the hard work of looking in. You say we have two eyes. One eye is to look out at other people for only two reasons. To ask either what can I do for you? How can I help you? Or what can I learn from you? And the other eye is to look inward and say, what do I need to fix? What do I need to address? What shift in my thinking do I need to make about this annoying person in my life? What strategies, etc., so that I can be successful and develop myself? Okay, quickly, in the Chovos al the duties of our heart, which was composed in the 11th century by Bachya ibn Pakuda, He writes about the benefits of humility. The humble person, he says, number one, is happy with what he has. Sameach b'chalko. He doesn't think I'm special. I deserve more. Whatever he has, he is thankful for. He counts his blessings because humility is rooted in gratitude. And this brings tranquility of spirit and diminishes anxiety. Number two, The humble person is able to accept misfortune. He understands, she understands that life is full of ups and downs. She's able to ride the waves. The haughty person, however, lives in fear, worrying and waiting for the next catastrophe to happen. Thirdly, the humble person is likable because they're interested in others. They get along with them. They're flexible and easy to adapt. They find it easy to empathize with others and stand in their shoes. The attitude of the humble person says the, in the Agaris Haramban, right? In the letter that the Ramban wrote to his son before he died about how to behave in this world. He says, this is how the humble person thinks. If somebody's wiser than me, then he must also be more God-fearing. If he's less wise than me, then he's less accountable because he's not as intelligent as I am. I'm going to be more accountable. If he's older than me, he must have more merits than I have because he's lived longer and done more mitzvah. If he's younger than me, then his demerits are fewer, right? He's done less of eras than I've done. If he's equal in age and wisdom, well, he's probably more devoted to Hashem than I am because I know my wrongdoings, but I certainly don't know his. If he's wealthier than me, he gives more tzedakah and supports the needy better than I do. And if he's poorer than me, he's probably more humble than I am and a better person. And the Ramban concludes with this attitude, I never fail to respect people and treat them with deference. Okay, we can continue with this idea. The last thing I just want to say is a story that came to mind um, from last year. And of course, we know that Lugba Omer this year is bittersweet. As much as it's a day of tremendous simcha, last year was the year when 45 neshamas were taken from the world at Mount Moron and Lugba Omer. And of course, for those people who it's the first yortzai and Lugba Omer is the day Right? It's a very, very difficult day to be happy and to have simcha. But if you remember, ladies, there was a, so many incredible stories that came out about some of these people who died that day. And the one that stuck in my mind and that relates so beautifully to this week of hod and lugba omer being hod shabah hod, going inward, practicing humility looking outward and worrying about the other person, feeling the other person, is in this story of one of the niftarim, one of the dead, who as he was dying, the person who was lying on top of him, who did not die, who stayed alive, before this boy began to say Shema Yisroel, knowing that he was going to die, he whispered into this this man's ear, I don't know if it was a man or a boy, who was lying on top of him. He said, I just want you to know, I don't think that it was your fault, that you're the reason that I'm ending my life now, because you're on top of me. It's Hashem's will. And the fact that in those last moments of life, this is what he was thinking about, the other person, the fear that the other person might live with tremendous guilt and sadness, thinking that he might have caused his death. These were his last thoughts, which showed, showed and revealed that he lived his whole life in this way. He was obviously a very special and developed neshama who Hashem took back because he probably had completely fulfilled his purpose in this world of becoming the opposite of anokhis, of self-absorption, self-centeredness, and shined the spotlight completely onto other people, even in those last moments of his life. This was his concern. So, may may we all learn from the great people among the Jewish people who've developed this trait. And of course, there are those who live among us today. And may we all work to recognize that our tremendous strengths and talents are to be celebrated, but that we have a lot, they, they come with strings attached. Hashem expects from us because of the gifts he gave us. And also recognize that our weaknesses and our negatives were also given to us by Hashem. We're not to beat ourselves up over them, but we do have to recognize that our work is to do the hard work of fixing ourselves and not worrying about fixing everybody else around us. Seeing only the good in others and only what needs improvement in ourselves finding that spark of goodness in others and realizing that the difficult people in our lives are there to help us work on ourselves, to help us develop more humility, empathy, compassion. Okay, ladies, thanks so much for joining me. Have a wonderful week. Kaksameh. And may may the light of love shine in all of your lives. And when we see the blessings, And the connection between the spiritual and the physical and deepen that understanding that Hashem permeates every single aspect of our lives. Amen. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, you, too. Thanks for joining. Thank you. It was wonderful.